And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge, the election issue. Today's segment, The Reporters. Tim Horton's Smile Cookie Week is back, starting September 13th. For one week, the iconic chocolate chunk cookies topped with a pink and blue smile will be available at Tim Horton's restaurants across Canada. 100% of the proceeds from each smile cookie will be donated to local charities and community groups in each restaurant's neighborhood. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, the Smile Cookie campaign has raised more than $60 million for charities, hospitals, and community programs across the country. Grab your Smile Cookie from September 13th to 19th only at Tim Hortons. And hello there. Yes, we are uh, at the critical point. You know, in the next few hours, in the next few days, the last two election debates between the leaders, one in French, one in English, and the country will get their perhaps best opportunity to make judgments about these people and what they say they will do if they're elected and their party becomes the government. Now, you may have said, since this election was called in the middle of August, you know, I haven't been tuned in. I'm not really watching. I'm not listening. I was on summer holidays. I don't need to listen to this stuff. Well, you know, every citizen has the right to vote. Every citizen over the age of 18 has the right to vote. And coming with that right is a certain responsibility to kind of understand what's at stake, what the different parties have to say. So you may have checked out for the last three weeks, and I'm sure a lot of Canadians have for the very reason that this has been summer. But kids are back to school now. And you have the opportunity this week to listen to these leaders and what their parties have to offer. And what better way than in a debate? Sometimes debates get out of hand, like the last one, but the last English one. But, you know, you still get a sense of who these people are. So if you can, you should watch these debates or listen to them. So that's Wednesday, French, Thursday, English. Now, if you follow the polls for whatever value you place in polls, there's one thing's been clear in the last three or four days because they're all very much the same. It's a close race, virtually tied in every poll that you see. Some with the Conservatives ahead by a point, some with the Liberals ahead by, there was one out this morning, Liberals ahead by two points. But basically, they're all within the margin of error. It's a virtual tie at the moment. So, as the old saying goes, every vote counts, right? Every vote counts. And if you doubt that, let me give you a little history. Here's your fun fact for today. Three times in Canadian federal elections, two candidates have tied on election night. One vote would have made the difference. So when were these Mansbridge, you say? 1887 in the riding of Joliet. 
the returning officer had to cast his vote. That decided the winner. In 1896, same thing. Two candidates each got 1,502 votes. The returning officer cast his vote. And the winner was declared. 1963, Pontiac to Miskaming. Two candidates, the Conservative and the Liberal, each got the same number of votes. Once again, the returning officer cast his vote. And a winner was declared. There have been eight ridings won by just one vote in federal elections. In all, there have been 22 ridings won by fewer than 10 votes. Now, one thing's different today. Now, the returning officer doesn't get the deciding vote anymore. If it's a tie, you have to have a by-election. So does one vote matter? Absolutely. One vote can matter. Keep that in mind as you look ahead to the next few days. Debates and then 10 days roughly to Election Day, September 20th. You can play a role. You should play a role. You're Canadian. You can't whine and moan about government if you don't even partake in voting day. All right. Debates, demonstrations, two key issues that confront reporters, journalists who cover these stories. How are they doing? How are they meeting the challenge? What is the challenge? of covering those two issues. Well, that's why on Tuesdays, we get together with Althea Raj, former bureau chief of the Huffington Post in Canada. She's about to be named. In fact, it could be any minute. She's about to be named in her new position, and it's a good one with a different news organization. Clearly, they've been listening to her on the bridge. And they said, we've got to get this person. Anyway, listen for that. It's coming up. And Rob Russo, former bureau chief of Canadian Press in Ottawa, former bureau chief of the CBC in Ottawa, also former Canadian press reporter in Washington covering the White House. So you got a lot of experience there in these two. And we're going to talk to them about the issues I just mentioned. And that's coming up. Let's get at it. Althea and Rob are both in Ottawa today, just a couple of days away from the English language debate, only 24 hours away from the second French language debate. And I want to talk about debates, not what you expect in these two particular ones, but in what what challenges confront journalists on these? We've all done enough of these. Some of us have done far too many debates, but we always seem every time to to face the same kind of challenges and often fall into the same kind of traps in trying to cover what is clearly a major moment in any campaign. And this, uh, this will be no exception to that rule. Um, Rob, why don't, why don't you start us? What's, what's the biggest challenge that journalists are confronted with in covering these debates? Um, it's usually the, the uh, immense pressure 
to uh, to either declare a winner or a loser or to somehow characterize beyond what our powers of observation and recall give us to characterize some sort of outcome. Uh, and, and I say that because we're all under deadline pressure. All, all three of us have worked in mediums where we, we, have to, we have to instantly produce an account of what occurred. Uh, and I think journalists get into trouble when they stray from using their powers of observation and recall uh, into uh, uh, the attempt to, to, to declare a winner. Because the, the truth is, we don't know. We get it wrong, except for very, very rare occasions, and I'm sure we're going to refer to them later on. We often get it completely wrong compared to the audience. And I'm, I'm, I'm reminded, I'll, I'll go back just uh, maybe 14 or 15 years in the 2004 debate, Paul Martin uh, against Stephen Harper, Stephen Harper running for the first time. Everybody's ganging up on Paul Martin. He's had a terrible, terrible uh, six months going into the campaign. The sponsorship scandal is breaking. All of this stuff is happening. They're all ganging up on him. Uh, and after the debate, everybody has declared Martin the loser. Uh, and he and his own team have declared him the loser as well. <laughs> 48 hours later, in comes the research. And David Hurley, who was running his campaign, walks in and, and tells everybody, we won the debate. And, and they're all stunned that they won. The, we, we, we won the debate and nobody knows why. The audience, voters, they make up their own mind. Well, that, that was a, a rarity, right? That, they, that everybody <laughs> could get it so wrong. But I, I take yeah. your point. I mean, there is this enormous pressure, um, you know, to, to say something definitive about what had happened. Now, columnists, they can do that. That's their job. You know, they, yeah. they write opinion. But the reporters who are covering the day-to-day -day story um, are supposed to look at it differently. I, you know, I can remember the, some of the early debates I covered. We, we, we'd all gathered together before the debate started and say, you know, we are not going to declare a winner in the first minute after this thing's over. You know, we're going to wait, let the people do what they, what they do, and we'll, we'll get their response first. No CBC journalist is going to say so-and-so won the debate. Well, you know, the first one that we did in a big way was 84, and that, that was the you had no option moment, and everybody kind of crowded in on that. But, you know, it, it's really hard not to say out of the gate, especially when it seems obvious to us, um, uh, you know, who won, who didn't win. You can, uh, you can declare stumblers. You can call people that stumbled. They, they begged for some sort of response. They had no response. But to declare a winner and a loser is a dangerous territory for somebody who isn't in the opinion business. Right. Now, Theo, uh, what's your take? I think it's a dangerous business to declare a winner and a loser, even if you're in the columnist business, because I think we tend to watch things in the lens that we have seen the rest of the campaign, which is we're completely immersed in it. So those surprising moments to us, the moments that jump out from the screen, usually because we're watching it on the internal monitor, even if we're actually at the debate location, um, that may not be the telling moment for the audience who has just come to this, you know, not completely immersed in it, not reading 50 stories about what's going on in the campaign trail and chatting with the friends that are on the other buses. I think the challenge, frankly, is how to be fair to all the parties involved in the debate. It's two hours. That's pretty intense. There's usually three to five, I'd say, telling moments for each 
um, each political party uh, in that debate? How do you accurately reflect what happened? Um, I think that's the challenge. Like I, I watched the TV debate last week and then I read lots of um, comments from the debate and I, I was struck how, you know, those would not have been the telling moments that I would have selected. Um, and what was telling for me was the stuff that was surprising to me. Um, and I'm not sure that those are, were the same takeaways for, you know, analysts who mostly cover provincial news who were covering federal news more intensely than they had usually. So I would say the fairness aspect is the one that I think is, um, as a reporter, is, is most difficult. What about the format on these things? <laughs> because like, I mean, uh, there've been so many different formats since the first one in, in 68. Um, but the last one seemed to be universally panned uh, by just about everyone as the worst. Just possible. the English, just the English. Just the, I'm sorry. You're, just, you're quite yeah. correct. The English language <laughs> debate um, w- was brutal. I mean, it was, it, it was, a, it truly was kind of a train wreck. Now the problem was, it had huge ratings. And so the television networks and the debate commission, you know, who love ratings and the debate commission who wants more and more people engaged in an actual debate have more or less gone with the same format, although they've added a, a moderator, um, which I don't know how that's going to work with five journalists and a moderator and everybody asking questions and you know and the it's going to be the it's the french format essentially what they've selected for the english debate the french format from last year or 2019 right. sorry but, i keep thinking the election so, was last year. So, so journalists ask questions and they'll and there'll be a moderator which is a kind of a blend a hybrid of, of what they've got which has a whole bunch of people on stage uh, which um my small brain, which knows a little bit about news and, and not a lot about anything else, will be very, very confused by, I think. Uh, particularly uh, given that that this this format arose, why? why? Why do we have a whole bunch of them on stage? It's because of, it, in what used to be called the consortium, <clears throat> before they ditched the name, because it made them sound like an evil empire. Um, the uh, the television networks came together and 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 set the format for the debate, and then they wanted all of their anchors on, right? Yes. Uh, uh, I'm sure Peter is an exception to this rule, but there is a certain amount of we got to get our own people on. We got to get some airtime. Uh, our people, our stars, need to shine, um, and. That doesn't make for a good debate, a great debate. If you go through uh, the history of great moments in debates, uh, the moderator played absolutely no role in them other than often to be silent and to allow the debate to go on. And that isn't the instinct of a reporter or of a television journalist or of an anchor. They want to be part of it. If, if, uh, if, if it's very, very difficult for them to help themselves. Uh, Peter, you, you can cuff me in the ear if you think I'm wrong, but to have four or five of them on doesn't also lead to the practice of a deductive series of questions getting at a certain point, a certain amount of information uh, for the voter. Uh, so I think that there are problems with a, with a multi-headed um, moderator or anchor format. Yeah, I, you know, I tend to agree when I look back and think of the ones that, you know, I, I, the 79 debate was really good, moderated by David Johnston from McGill University at the time, you know, uh, since then has become a gov- was the governor general for a while. Um, but uh, and that TVR debate last week, Althea, that was pretty good. And the moderator was, you know, he could 
challenged me, perhaps some of the questionnaires he went in on, but he allowed them to debate and he ensured they did debate and he didn't let it get out of hand. Uh, the problem with the last one was it was totally out of hand the whole time. Um, so, you know, I don't know how this one, one will unfold, but I'm more of the opinion of the single moderator or at, you know, if you're going to involve journalists, you know, there used to be because there used to just be the three networks on the English side that they'd worry about global CTV and CBC, the senior political journalist from each one of those networks would be sitting on kind of a, a little panel and ask the odd question. But Rob's exactly right. I mean, the best moments are ones where the, you don't see anybody but the leaders. Those are the ones that are sort of in the archives, in the vault of debates. Althea? Um, so I don't disagree. So, and I will also say that um, I should recall to the listener that I was involved in the 2019 debate as a debate moderator. Um, I don't actually know how that came to be. My understanding was that the three networks could not agree on an anchor. And that's how everybody ended up being any a moderator. Um including myself and the Toronto star um, chose Susan Delacourt because they were also, you know, they didn't have a TV anchor to put on the stage Um, from like the behind the scenes perspective. I think what's difficult when you are basically a moderator for like 10 minutes of the debate is there's also no sense of continue continuity. So, you know, you, I didn't, I think I was second I watched part of Lisa LaFlamme's um, like moderating of the debate and then she was gone, but she was, her part was also on a select topic. And then, then I think it was me. Um, but if something happens, like one of the things that happened in the debate last time is we ran heavy and they told me that the clock was now going to be like 45 I'm going to give I'm going to give this as an example because I don't remember exactly, but let's say they were given 60 seconds to respond. And now we, the show was too heavy and it's like live television. You actually have to be out at your two hour mark. Now the, uh, the leaders only had 45 seconds to respond. And I remember at one point, Elizabeth May was like, but we're supposed to have longer to respond. And I had to say, well, I'm sorry, but now you only have 45 seconds to respond. And the problem with that is, they have timed their response in debate prep to be (laughs) 60 seconds. So now they're like having to say on the fly, like, Oh, like what can I say in this specific amount of time? And I didn't know how, like, I kind of had to like tell her like straight up as if I would tell her if we were, you know, in the quarters of the comments, like, well, I'm sorry, but right now you only have four beyond my control. I don't have um, anything to do with this. Um, I understand why the networks, especially the networks, view it basically as a branding exercise. I mean, it's a really unique opportunity. You're in front of like 19 million Canadians. It's the largest audience you'll ever have probably to say, these are my best people. And, you know, if you like what you see, you can watch the news at 5.30 or 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock. But I agree. I think it is much more simple. I think it's actually fairer to the audience and fairer to the leaders to have someone who can say, you know, like, you didn't have enough time to answer on this. I'm giving you more time to answer on this and like really kind of steer the ship. Um, 
And, you know, we had Steve Pagan, who was not tied to any of the main networks um, host debates. I don't know why they can't pick somebody that would be seen as as neutral and acceptable to the consortium. But the real reason, and Rob talked about it, is, is branding. Yeah, I'll, branding yeah. and they can't agree. <laughs> I, I'll just say one thing about the timing thing. I think it's just like, it, it, it's so brutal of the Canadian television networks to say, we agreed on two hours and we can't go over one second because we're running a little late. We have to be on off at the, the two hour mark. That's just crap. You know, if the Americans who face much more heavy commercialization in terms of their networks and, and, and the pressure to get off can run over five, 10, 15 minutes in some cases on debate nights, it's because they understand that this is kind of important. Um, mm-hmm. But for the Canadian networks to, to use that as an excuse, I think, is, and to put people like you, uh, you know, we, we were trying to hide that fact that you weren't in that one last time. Um, uh, but to put people like you in that position of having to tell them, no, no, you've only got 45 seconds now. Although I've never, <laughs> I've, I've never seen Elizabeth May uh, go according to a script anyway. So <laughs> she, she, she could easily go 45 instead of 60. But no, that's not my point. My point is they should be flexible if they have to be. Or cut in a different manner. They were they were they were trapped by the fact they had to go to all five anchors because of all the five networks uh, or five news organizations. But, yeah, five partners. Yeah, yeah. I mean that was uh, that was the you know the problem. Or normally you would just say, okay, drop the last section. Well, it couldn't do that anyway. Rob, the other the other thing that's notable about TVS debate um, compared to the debate that that took place in 2019, is that, that there were two fewer people on the stage. There was no mm-hmm. Green Party leader on the stage uh, during the TBI debate, and Maxime Bernier wasn't there either. And that reduces the possibility of the Tower of Babel, uh, which is when you get a, a you know four, five, six people all speaking simultaneously, uh, trying to speak over each other, trying to get the moderator's attention uh, and losing the audience. Um, another moment that, that, you know, one that's one of the things that looked uh, that, that happened in 2004 to Paul Martin. And he managed, unbeknownst to himself and his own people, to look prime ministerial and a little bit above that. And that, and that's what ended up helping them, according to some of their research. Um, so, you know, we we will have a little bit more of that uh, probably on on uh, on Thursday night. Um, but uh, the uh, the TBI debate was notable for that. You know, Pat, it, it is it isn't timing as much as as um, really it's wit. You know, the best moments were often unscripted. Some of them were scripted, but they, they happened very quickly. And I'm thinking of a, a debate hosted by Steve Bacon, who did an excellent job in 2011, when um, uh, Michael Ignatieff went on about why he should have the job. And Jack Layden interrupted him and said, let me get this straight. You've been in Parliament about 35% of the time. Uh, you want a promotion? If you're going to apply for a promotion, you better show up for work. Right. Um, that, that didn't take 45 seconds. It took about a dozen seconds. And uh, it was very, very effective. And, and that gift had nothing. Nothing but at all. But that, Rob, that Rob was scripted. Very like, scripted. Like, that was practice from Absolutely. the Jack in camp. Yeah, it was yeah. like, those golden moments are all, like, practiced. Like, the, yeah. the Trudeau moment in the TVI debate where he is talking about, I mean, he got it wrong because it was page 96 in the French platform, but page 90 on the English debate, uh, yeah. in the English platform, where Trudeau goes hard at 
Aaron O'Toole on the gun stuff. Like those are moments that are practiced that the Trudeau going hard on Aaron O'Toole on private healthcare was practiced that Aaron going hard on uh, Justin Trudeau on um, general Vance and the sexual harassment in the military. These are all moments that the parties try to think about, Oh, what is my golden moment? And they, they practice them. Thoroughly rehearsed. Uh, and but it doesn't take 45 seconds. The, the, the most famous one that you had an option, sir, yeah. <laughs> was probably a dozen seconds as well, and was made, I think, most powerful by John Turner's inability to, to stumble out a few words in response. Right. Yeah. What Can you we talk need? about the fact that there is like only one English debate? Because I, you know, I understand why the Liberals wanted to have a debate consortium because that Stephen Harper in 2015 did not want to do an official leaders debate. And so they wanted to ensure that there would be like still a consortium debate. But the idea that because we have one official consortium debate, now it gives an excuse usually to the incumbent prime minister um, not to agree to more debates, I think is really quite shameful, especially now that everybody's kind of getting their, their media consumption and bite-sized pieces and targeted messages on Facebook and here and that, I feel like, um, what we've seen so far from the French networks, we've had the round table with Radio Canada and now the face face with TVA and the French is getting another uh, official debate this week has been really illuminating in terms of the party leaders and their like who they are as people and their positioning. I mean, it's a real shame that in the rest of the country, we don't have that. Yeah, I, you know, listen, if there was one debate a week, I think, you know, first of all, audiences would drop because they're just do as things are, are, are repeated. That's true. Um, but, um, but I still think it would be more of a public service than the at time charade that takes place with the dropping out of the sky from the aluminum tube, as Rob so aptly put it <laughs> at the beginning of, uh, of this campaign, uh, to speak usually in front of, um, you know, partisan crowds that are partisan in your favor. Speaking of which, we're going to take a little break and talk about the partisan crowds who are not in your favor and some of the kind of things that have happened, uh, including just yesterday in London, Ontario, where there was uh, a rock throwing or stone throwing uh, situation uh, that followed the prime minister. I want to talk about that and the and whether we're covering those things right. Um, let me uh, let me quickly take a break and then we'll be right back on that. Starting September 13th, Tim Hortons Smile Cookie Week is back. From September 13th to 19th at Tim Hortons, 100% of the proceeds from all Smile Cookies purchased will be donated to local charities and community groups across Canada. In the last 25 years, you have helped us raise over $60 million, and in 2020 alone, Smile Cookie Week brought in $10.6 million while helping over 500 community organizations. You can participate by grabbing your own Smile Cookie at Tim Hortons restaurants across Canada from September 13th to 19th. This is The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge. Back with Althea Raj and Rob Russo, both in Ottawa. This is the reporters segment on The Bridge's special election coverage. Okay, uh, I mentioned this issue that happened uh, yesterday in London, Ontario, uh, where a number of angry protesters, and they've we've seen this on a number of occasions already, following uh, Justin Trudeau around, 
Um, and it uh, this time it uh, it, it kind of got out of hand, not to the point at which anything was canceled in terms of an event, but it got out of hand in, in that at least one person was throwing stuff, and it appears to be uh, gravel or stones or small rocks, something. Um, and, you know, there's been a flurry of activity around that in terms of journalism. That's been sort of the main story uh, on the morning shows this morning, uh, not anything that Trudeau said specifically about policies or attacking the other parties or what have you, but it was all surrounding this moment. I want a, a sense from from both of you as to whether we're are are we covering this kind of thing right? Obviously, you can't ignore it, but should it get the kind of attention it's getting, and is the attention that it is getting the right attention, Rob? Um, let me go back to the first week of the campaign and, and, uh, um, uh, the people I work with at CBC decided to do a story on a lone protester who had followed the prime minister from Ontario to British Columbia, I believe. Um, and I thought that that might've been a little excessive. This was one guy. Yes. He clearly was moneyed. Uh, and or maybe had people backing him to to dog the prime minister and we all know the parties do that going all the way back to judy lamarche and the truth squad for those of you who are as old as i am um uh, but i thought that was a little excessive the people who are now turning up regularly at uh, trudeau's rallies though i think represent a dedicated core of canadians Uh, we can disagree with them uh, certainly I do in terms of vaccines and science, um, but should they be covered? Um, I, yeah, we need to try to understand why people feel this way. I think we ignore them at our peril, um, uh, but we shouldn't try to, uh, to give them more um, influence than uh, or prominence than they probably have. And if I, if I, if I talk to pollsters, they say they represent about 10% of Canadians. That's not an insignificant number, but it's, it's not, it's not the number that's, that's going to um, make the difference. I think in in an election, they probably vote one particular way in most instances. Now the incident last night about um, the prime minister uh, getting pelted with, with some small stones, like at that, at that point, I'm not sure that it's a blazing headline. I'm not sure we break into regular coverage if we're running all news channels. Um, I, I don't think we do that. The prime minister was unhurt. Nobody was hurt. Um, uh, we show the pictures. Again, uh, what I used to say to print reporters, use your powers of observation and recall. Don't report what you don't know. Report what you see, what you hear. And what people tell you, if you could verify it, but no more than that, and allow viewers and listeners and readers to make make up their mind. Okay, I've got more questions on this, but I want to first of all get Althea's general reaction to the question of how we're dealing with this. Well, I feel like your question is assuming something, and I'm not sure what it is that you're assuming. What is it? What What do you feel the coverage has lacked or been? I, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I'm not assuming anything yet. I just want to get a, a general sense from you as to how we deal with this with this kind of a story, which is happening almost on a daily basis. Well, I think you have to cover it. It's right there, staring at you in the face. It is the thing that reporters getting off the bus are greeted with wherever they go. And frankly, right now, 
you know, the liberal leader's agenda is not uh, publicized. It says, like this morning's announcement said, you have to tell the liberal media team that you want to cover the event by seven o'clock, and then you have to be at the said location in Montreal at 7.45. Like, that is not a lot of time for local news agencies to scramble their people and send them to the location. So I'd, you know, for this suggestion on social media that the liberals are, are leaking their campaign schedule so that protesters can assemble ahead of time, I think it's a little bit rich. Um, I, to go back to Rob's point about the, the man who travels from Ontario to BC, like to me, the question was, cause he said it like, who is paying him? And that question still, I have not heard the answer to that question. He said to the answer, are you being paid? He responded, maybe, well, that's kind of important. Like, is the People's Party of Canada paying you? Is a third party group paying you to follow around the prime minister? Like, those are absolutely valid questions. I don't really care about this particular man's background. But if there's a third party who is organizing the protests, um, that is absolutely legitimate questions that we should be chasing down. My question also looking at the protest is, frankly, why the uh why the prime minister's protective detail and um, local police are not creating more of a barrier. I find that really surprising. Like the images that we see, the fact that the protesters can get so close to the bus. Um, I, I don't know if that's the liberals like staking their ground that they actually want to have those shots of him meeting in the crowds, but it seems really surprising to me having traveled with several prime ministers that that is being allowed to happen. All right. Well, you know, I think your answer uh, makes it easy for me to ask the follow-up question, which is, mm-hmm. are we being aggressive enough in trying to determine the answers to some of the questions you're, that you've just posed? Um, and mainly it's sort of, you know, is there is there somebody behind this? Is there some group behind this? Or is this just individuals uh, exercising, to a degree, their right to protest and, you know, yell and scream in a, in a, in a campaign event? Not the throwing of rocks, not the punching, not the uh, obscene gestures, uh, but everything else. Are we being aggressive enough in trying to find out the answers to some of the, the questions you ask? Well, I think the quick answer is no, because otherwise we would know the answer to those questions. And I think on the protesters, um, I think for sure there is organic protesting happen on social media. But I don't know that we well, I don't know the answer to is there aside from the organic protesters happening. Is there somebody also corralling people or sharing of information? I don't know that, the answer to that question. Well, I guess by being more aggressive and asking the questions, you are taking the story more seriously than we are at the moment, which has its own problems. As Rob said, maybe we're paying too much attention to it. It's, yeah, it's I, I, one of these constants that yeah. uh, challenge us as journalists. Protesters uh, organized by other parties have been showing up for a long, long time. Uh, you know, people show up in chicken suits. Uh, pe- people, people show up uh, in, as corn cob bob. People, uh, people do all kinds of things. Uh, organized by opposition to, thr- to throw off uh, political leaders. That's happened uh, forever. This is different, um, and this merits coverage perhaps separately from whatever the leader is trying to say. I think we need to, we try, to try and understand what's happening. If we want to really reflect this moment in our history, 
Uh, we need to understand those people who are gathering, why they're gathering. Um, it, it doesn't seem, just judging by the way people are scurrying to defend the prime minister and his right to speak, uh, other political leaders, doesn't seem like other political leaders want to risk being associated with this. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a real social phenomenon, and we, and we need to understand it. What we don't need it to do is to become the issue that most consumes Canadians right now, because no survey, no research I've seen suggests that this is the issue that most consumes Canadians, whether or not we should be vaccinated. Canadians have made up their mind. 80% of us have gotten our first and second shot now, those of us who are eligible. Um, that Therein lies the danger for journalists. And also, I might say, the Prime Minister might be feeding off these crowds now. He didn't avoid them yesterday. He went after them. Uh, And so we've got to be aware of that as well. Good discussion on uh, both issues and uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk to you two uh, on it, as I do every week. Rob Russo, Althea Raj, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Before we go today, uh, I want to just once again mention something I mentioned on yesterday's program and uh, it's about my new book i'm shameless plugging shamelessly plugging my book uh comes out a month from now october 5th is the date it comes out it's called off the record and it's a collection of well in some ways it's kind of a biography i guess an autobiography because it's a story of my life and my career um but it's built around a series quite a few couple of dozen three or four dozen actually anecdotes from my career um, that tell stories not just about me or about the people I mention in it but about the business of journalism and these are the kind of stories that you know weren't on the air but they're the kind of stories I end up telling friends who ask what was such and such like and I say well you know you saw what it was like on the air but let me tell you what was happening behind the scenes those are the kind of stories I tell in off the record. And, um, you know, the, uh, the early indication is from people uh, who have had an opportunity to read it um, before it goes on sale, uh, uh, they seem to be quite excited by it. So I hope you would be too. Um, the point of the uh, comment I was going to make, if you recall last year when I came out with Extraordinary Canadians along with uh, Mark Bulgich, um, a lot of you wanted me to sign book plates. And I mean a lot. And I did that all on my own time. But I'm not going to be able to do that this year because I'm going to be away a lot at the end of this year working on the documentaries that I'm doing. I'm just not going to be able to do it. Um, But Simon & Schuster, the publisher, is very excited about this possibility. And they are offering up an opportunity for you to get a book bite now uh, in the next month with a pre-order purchase. So they're going to you kind of enter a pool, for the lack of a better word, and 50 names will be drawn out of that pool of people who have pre-ordered off the record. Um, you can do it all on my website, thepetermansbridge.com. All right, thepetermansbridge.com. And as soon as you go into that website, the first thing that will pop up is an invitation for you to uh, head towards entering this opportunity to get a signed book plate uh, that you can put inside the book when it arrives. 
Anyway, so that's my plug. I'll probably mention it a couple of times. It's only during this month, during the month of September, before it goes on sale in a regular fashion at bookstores. Uh, So if you're interested, please give it a try. Off the record, thepetermansbridge.com. All right, tomorrow it's Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. That should be fun. Always is. Hope you'll be there with us. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.